because um, this is for spring one um, tutoring session for the final exam. Um, we are going to be covering um, everything from the beginning of the course up until the end. Um, 20 of the questions from the final will be from um, regarding stroke. Okay, so as far as stroke, um, it is important to know um, the different uh, deficits that would be noted um, depending on what side um, the stroke occurred. So for instance, if you have a person um, who had a stroke um, on their left side, then we know um, that due to that contralateral effect where you have the opposite side um, is going to be the one that's affected, we would know um, that that person is going to have deficits on the right side, right? Because it's contralateral. So right um, left-sided um, stroke is going to have the effects on the right side. We know that that left hemisphere um, has the analytic for language to science, math, so all that concrete thinking. Um, so we can anticipate um, that a person who's had a left um, stroke would have issues with communication, um, they're going to have issues um, with movement as far as they move really slowly. Um, they are aware of their deficits, um, so there's more likelihood of them having some sort of depression or anxiety. Um, and again, because it has affected their language um, area, there may be some issues as far as comprehension. Um, some, some sort of aphasia um, is definitely going to be present with these patients. So we are going to um, have to help them communicate, maybe provide some visual aids, um, speak to them slowly, um, one thing at a time in order for them to really fully grasp what they may be, um, what we may be asking or um, be able to um, form the words um, for them to be able to express um, their needs um, or whatever it is that um, may be going on with them. Now, as far as the right side, we know that that's more of um, the abstract thinking, you know, art, music, imagination. Um, again, if you have it on the right side, um, the deficits are going to be noted on the left side. But those with the right CVA um, oftentimes have issues with impulse control. Their attention span tends to be um, pretty short. They are not aware um, of their deficits, so they're more impulsive. Um, there may be some impaired judgment. Um, so those patients are more likely to be injured because they really don't have the control to determine um, if they're being safe um, or not. Um, let's see. Aphasia, we know, um, has to do with their communication. There may be issues with receptive, which is um, they're not understanding. So their reception of whatever it is um, that we're speaking to them is not um, being fully um, translated in their brains. There may be expressive um, where they're just not able to produce the language or there may be some sort of global aphasia um, where they're going to be completely unable to communicate. Um, this is usually secondary to a massive stroke, um, so those patients are going to need um, obviously a lot more of assistance and patience um, when we're trying to communicate with them or get a response um, from them as well. Um, as far as perception, um, we know that some of these patients may have something called homonymous um, hemonopsia, um, where they become, um, they lose their ability to see an entire side um, 
whether right side or left side. Um, so for those patients, we want to make sure that they are turning themselves around towards that side um, in order to really fully be able to see um, what is going on on that side. Um, let's see, um, as far as the types of strokes, um, we have three main ones. We have your um, your thrombotic, thrombolic, and your hemorrhagic. Your thrombotic strokes um, are due to um, a plaque, um, a piece of the plaque breaking off, the body responding with that inflammatory response, um, and then forming this clot, which um, is going to further um, interrupt the blood flow um, in those vessels. Your number one um, cause for thrombotic strokes um, is hypertension and your diabetic patients. These are the ones that oftentimes have a TIA ahead of a thrombotic stroke. Um, that TIA is like the warning sign. Right? We said they have pretty much the signs and symptoms of a stroke, but usually that within 24 hours they have dissipated. Um, embolic strokes um, are usually due to um, a clot that dislodged from another body part and ended up in the brain. Um, these are not um, more oftentimes um, cardiovascular in nature, so your atrial fibrillation patients, your um, valve replacements, your atrial septic defects, um, those patients are a higher likelihood of having one of these um, emboli or clots um, dislodge and end up in the brain. Now your hemorrhagics could be due to an intracerebral bleed, um, for instance, um, possibly an aneurysm um, that has ruptured and has caused blood to dissipate all over the brain. Um, this causes damage to the tissue um, and again um, causes um, the cell death. Um, while there may also be um, thrombotics um, hemorrhagic strokes, which are in the subarachnoid space, um, maybe due to some sort of trauma or fall. Um, but both of these um, hemorrhagic strokes, oftentimes um, they're preceded by a severe headache. So the patient will tell you they've had the worst headache of their life. Um, and that kind of tells us that there's something um, that is seriously wrong. These patients usually um, present um, with some sort of um, febrile um, presentation, um, and that kind of tells us, you know, the body is changing that um, intracranial pressure, and that's where the fever comes from. Um, when we're looking at intracranial pressure as well, um, we know that any of these um, are going to alter that pressure, um, and then um, you should be aware of the presentations with intracranial pressure changes. We know that they um, we check them um, and the patient could have some restlessness, impaired speech, altered level of consciousness. Um, all these things are telling us that the pressure of the brain um, is not um, what it should be and the person's having these deficits that go on. Um, in the event that you either witness or have somebody who's coming in um, with a potential stroke, it is important that you take all the precautions um, as if they were having a stroke until proven otherwise. It could very well be a TIA, but we are going to err on the side of caution and go ahead and take those um, emergency um, procedures. So for instance, if you witnessed it outside of a hospital, um, we're going to try to get 911 as soon as possible um, for them to get evaluated. Oftentimes, time is of the essence with these patients. We want to get them to um, a hospital or higher level of care um, in order to get appropriate treatment. Upon um, 
getting this patient into the emergency room, our first diagnostic is gonna be a CT of the brain. Um, it's fast, it's quick, um, and it gives us a lot of information. Um, so we need to know, um, is it due to a bleed? Is it due to a clot or is it, um, or maybe it's some sort of other lesion that is mimicking the signs of a stroke. So that CT of the brain is gonna definitely give us a lot of information um, and guide our treatment. Um, for those patients that have had a previous TIAs, um, we want to uh, make sure that they are not forming those clots that could, again, potentially block those vessels and prevent um, blood flow from continuing on. So those patients are going to be on some sort of anticoagulant therapy. So it delays um, the process of that clot formation in the event um, that a piece of the plaque breaks off and the body responds by forming um, a clot. Um, examples are aspirin um, for that antiplatelet therapy um, with the patients that have um, a history of atrial fibrillation, which again, those embolic strokes um, usually come from some sort of cardiovascular nature. Um, those patients would be on medications such as warfarin, which is Coumadin or Saralto, Alicoz, um, in order to also prevent that clot um, from forming and ending up um, in the brain. Um, let's see. Um, for these patients, we definitely want to um, maximize their potential um, with rehabilitation. So depending on the level of the stroke and how many deficits they are will be how in depth or how um, much um, therapy they're going to need afterwards and how many services they're going to need. Um, initially, um, we want to get that um, gag reflex checked. Um, so a speech therapy will be um, our consult um, and they will determine um, what kind of feeds this patient can have. Can they be fully liquid? Can they be thickened? Um, what they can and cannot have. Um, once they make their recommendations and that first initial feed um, is going to be done by the nurse in order to fully assess um, if the patient is in fact able to tolerate. Um, and we wanna make sure that in that initial feed, we have suction available at the bedside in case the patient starts to choke um, or isn't able to um, tolerate the food. We wanna make sure um, that we have uh, emergency um, equipment at the bedside. In addition to that, once we, you know, determine, yes, this patient um, is able to eat, you know, and tolerate the feeds, their gag reflex is back, then we also want to educate the caregivers, family members, friends, whoever is going to help with the care of this patient as far as how to feed them, um, how to thicken the foods, um, make sure that they are, um, you know, cutting up the food into small bites um, so they don't have to chew as much um, and there's a less likelihood of them choking or not being able um, to appropriately swallow. Um, in addition to that, um, patients that may have a stroke may have some issues with mobility, um, especially initially before they're able to fully regain their strength. You know, physical therapy is going to help us with those strengthening exercises, but we need to make sure that we are um, maintaining that skin integrity. And so we're looking for um, pressure ulcer formation, um, turning patients every two hours, making sure that their skin um, 
integrity is, you know, is as it should be, um, that they, if they are having some incontinence or some issues like that, that we are getting them changed um, as often as possible, that our sheets are not wrinkles, um, that we're not allowing them to form um, any sort of um, pressure ulcers or anything like that. Um, and then um, some of them may have to learn to do um, their ADLs and then we would get the Council of Occupational Therapy for that in order for them to fully um, be able to teach them how to do, based on their limitations, um, do as much as they possibly can for themselves. Um, they're going to help with, you know, utensils, um, grab bars, um, just all those assistive devices um, that they could potentially need um, in the event. Um, that they have long-term um, deficits. Okay, now um, that was for stroke um, procedures. We wanna make sure um, that we are aware of those seizure precautions, that we know um, in the event that a patient is sitting or standing, that we are helping them to the floor um, or to a flat surface in order to prevent them from falling and potentially injuring their head or anything like that. That we're moving things away from them um, because they may be unconscious and in the tonic, clonic, or generalized seizure phase. Um, they're high risk for injury that we are turning them to the side. Um, and that's important in the event that they throw up. Um, they, they do not aspirate. Um, again, never put anything in their mouth. Um, they can bite down and break it. Um, and that could potentially um, cause them some sort of injury. A new onset of seizures or somebody who may have some seizure activity, whether it's confirmed or not, um, initially they should be going to the hospital to get further evaluation. Um, they will have an EEG, which is an electroencephalogram. Um, it's measuring that abnormal electrical activity in the brain, and hopefully it's able to tell us um, where... Um, and how long um, that electrical activity is occurring. Um, in addition to that, just like with the stroke, we wanna make sure that there aren't um, any other lesions that could potentially be causing the seizure activity. So CT of the brain um, is also anticipated to be ordered to kind of make sure there's no tumors or anything like that um, that could be triggering this seizure activity. Electrolytes are also important because we said that a lot of the electrolytes if they have an imbalance, they could potentially trigger some seizure activity on the patient. So um, that's another study that we would be um, anticipating would be ordered um, for a patient um, that has a new onset of seizures. Um, we also need to make sure um, once we know that the patient does have seizure, part of the education um, is finding those triggers that that patient may have um, so they are able to avoid them. Um, some patients, um, their seizures are triggered by excessive tiredness, dehydration, um, flashing lights, um, um, you know, a lot of caffeinated products or any stimulants um, can potentially trigger seizures on a patient. Um, so once they're able to identify those, hopefully being able to avoid them or catch them um, before it triggers a seizure. Um, as far as treatment, they are anti-seizure medications. Um, there's different classes. It just depends on what the patient's able to tolerate or not. Um, but um, those seizure medications usually have to be taken long-term. 
Um, they usually start with only one medication. Um, they could potentially add another. But they try to limit um, how many uh, medications combination they would have. Um, so they try to have one um, and they start adding um, up the dose um, to maximize the amount of protection they're having against the seizure activity without um, getting the excessive side effects. Um, sometimes they may add adjuvants in order to help um, maximize that seizure um, like treatment. Um, but again, um, those medications are usually long-term um, or lifelong um, because an, if a patient stops taking them, they can potentially um, get rebound seizures because of it. Um, in the emergency case of uh, status epilepticus, consensus for seizures are lasting more than five minutes or there's multiple seizures without allowing that post-ictal phase to be achieved um, for that patient. The longer the seizure activity lasts, um, the less likely it is going to be able to be um, fully treated and the higher the likelihood that the patient's going to have some long-term deficits from um, that lack of oxygen and repeated abnormal electrical activity. So we want to um, anticipate that these patients are going to get something, um, a medication that's going to hopefully stop that seizure activity, and then they would be put on something that's more long-term um, as far as symptom control. Um, so those initial medications are going to be your benzodiazepines, such as lorazepam or um, um, either Adiran or, um, or Valium. Um, and those are going to be the ones that are going to um, hopefully stop it. Um, in the hospital, we would give it IV. Um, sometimes the patients may have this at home in suppository form, um, that in the event that they start having, you know, a status of blood tickets, you know, the family member or caregivers um, can go ahead and give them that medication. Um, that is for seizures. Um, for the topic of infection, um, we talked about C. diff. We also covered that in GI. Um, we know C. diff, um, they're spores. They live long periods of time on surfaces, so we want to have contact precautions with these patients. We want to make sure that we are not um, allowing these spores um, and C. diff to travel to other patients. Um, patients are at high risk when they're on long-term antibiotics. Um, that could potentially affect their flora. So anytime that they've had C. diff in the past, um, we want to make sure that we are encouraging the use of probiotics in order to prevent further episodes. Um, in addition to that, um, we want to make sure um, that they're not overusing antibiotics and that they are getting the treatment that they need in order to stop um, that case of C. diff and everybody um, in their home, you know, needs to properly wash your hands, make sure they're cleaning all the surfaces in order to prevent it um, from spreading from one person to the other. Um, also with infections, um, when talking about needle sticks, um, accidental needle sticks, we said that even though the likelihood of a person um, being um, infected with HIV is very, very small, we want obviously to take um, all precautions um, in the event that it does happen. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure um, that we wash the area very thoroughly with soap and water to hopefully um, remove anything that may have been um, on the surface. 
um, and minimize that potential um, inoculation. Um, for HIV, um, you know, initial testing is your ELISA. Um, our confirmation um, is going to be the Western blot. Um, things that we're looking for um, is to make sure that um, these clients do have, hopefully, um, antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible um, in order to minimize that viral load that they may have um, and hopefully prevent the spread of it. In addition to that, um, anybody who could potentially have become infected or come in contact with somebody with HIV, um, we want them to get tested, um, even though um, initially we said that those signs and symptoms of initial infection come and mimic like a flu-like symptoms um, and oftentimes get um they don't really um, pay much attention to it because they think, oh, maybe I just have a flu, maybe I have a cold, um, and that's why I'm having these signs and symptoms, but um, it's during that period where they're most infective, um, but they don't know it and they may not be getting um, tested. Okay, um, okay for cardiac, um, we know um, a patient who comes in with chest pain, we know we're going to get an EKG to determine um, what kind of abnormality is occurring, if any, as far as a rhythm. Um, we're also going to be doing um, a cardiac workup with cardiac enzymes because the different enzymes are going to tell us um, has there been damage to the heart and they're going to contribute one to the other um, in order to make that determination. Um, we said troconin is very cardiac specific, um, so it will get released when there has been damage to the heart tissue. Um, but in combination with all the other tests, um, if they all come back positive, they kind of correlate and kind of tell us, hey, yeah, um, in fact, this person has um, had a heart attack or some sort of cardiac damage. Um, and then they would have to get um, some further work up in order to determine exactly what the location is um, of the cardiac issues. Um, let's see. Um, for arterial disease, we know um, it has to do with peripheral arterial disease. There's not enough blood flow going to the extremities. The extremities tend to get cold. Um, we know initially that arterial disease, they get this intermittent claudication. Um, it is reproducible. So if you have the person walk, um, they are going to get the pain. Um, and if they rest, it's going to go away. As the blockage continues and further worsens, the patient will eventually have pain at rest. Usually when they're sleeping, it'll wake them up from the night. In addition to that, um, if you have these patients um, elevate their legs um, higher than the level of the heart um, because they're not getting enough blood flow, there's going to be some pallor. Um, and then in the opposite, if they are sitting with their legs hanging down for long periods of time, there's going to be some redness, some erythema, um, rubber um, that's going to show up. Once they elevate their legs a little bit, that rubber is going to go away. Um, for treatment as far as um, hypertension, we know there's different antihypertensives. Initially, we start with the diuretics, those are usually your first line. Um, and then we eventually, um, if that doesn't work, then they may add additional medications. Um, diuretics should be given first thing in the morning. We don't want, um, especially our elderly patients, to be taking diuretics and having to be up all night um, voiding because that increases their likelihood of falls um, and risk for injury. 
Um, sometimes you may also see patients be on aspirin, just like with the clots. We said that it's antiplatelets, um, so it basically prevents the stickiness of the platelets to one another and reduces those likelihood um, of the clots being formed. Um, As far as um, hypertension, um, we know these patients oftentimes have um, primary hypertension. There is no um, specific cause. However, we know um, that a lot of times these patients have coexisting medical conditions, um, such as obstructive sleep apnea. Um, they may have high sodium intake. Um, a there may be some issues with um, hormones, um, obesity, diabetes, your smokers, your excessive alcohol intakes, all those um, have a likelihood of, prevent of developing primary hypertension. While secondary hypertension, we know those are secondary to another um, medical process. So if that other process is treated, um, then um, that also will go away. For instance, um, your patients have liver cirrhosis, um, pregnancy-induced hypertension, issues with renal disease, your sleep apnea patients, if um, especially your obstructive sleep apnea patients, um, if we are able to um, get rid of what is obstructing the airway, um, we do know that they will um, also have um, some improvement in their blood pressure readings. Um, Okay, for musculoskeletal, um, we want to make sure anytime there's any kind of injury, whether it's a sprain, a strain, a fracture, um, anything like that, that we are checking neurovascular checks, that we're checking that there's proper blood flow, that the sensation is intact, um, and any changes in that um, would kind of let us know um, that there are some issues with either blood flow or um, with the nerves um, going to that particular area. So if we're able to catch those um, early on, we can probably avoid um, some long-term complications for the patient. Um, compartment syndrome, we know all these patients were gonna present with increasing edema. Um, they're gonna complain of a lot of pressure that they feel, um, pain that now has worsened rather than improved or is not improving with the pain medications. Um, so the pain level is not going to match um, where they are in their recovery. Oftentimes, um, whenever there is some sort of crush injury where there's multiple injuries, multiple fractures, um, that excessive swelling and edema and inflammatory process is going to fill in into all those compartments um, and cause this um, compartment syndrome. Um, treatment for compartment syndrome is a fasciotomy. We want to relieve that pressure. So if you think of a balloon that's being filled up, filled, 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 eventually it can't go anywhere else. Um, so that fasciotomy is going to open up that pressure, that balloon, um, and it's going to allow all that pressure to escape. Um, let's see. Um, fat emboli, uh, we know it's a complication from long bone fractures because of that bone marrow. Um, any of those fat globules can be released due to the fracture. Um, we want to minimize um, any uh, movement or excessive manipulation of these long bone fractures um, in order to kind of minimize, hopefully, the risk of a fat globule being dislodged. Um, these patients um, as well, um, 
should be monitored um, not just for long bones, but your pelvic fractures, your um, joint placements, all those are also at um, high risk for those um, fat emboli. Usually your first 24 to 48 hours is where the highest risk and incidence will be. Um, initial findings will be the patient may have hypoxia, so their oxygen saturation is going to drop down. Um, if it is not addressed, then it will um, continue to progress. Um, and the patient is going to have altered mental status um, and have difficulty breathing, etc. Um, late findings, very specific to fat embolize, is a petechiae, the chest, the axilla, the conjunctiva. Um, that's very specific to pulmonary, I mean, to fat embolism, um, as far as um, many of the other symptoms are also with the fat, em with the regular emboli, but the fat emboli will be specific with that petechiae. Um, let's see, we talked about apartment syndrome, fat emboli, um, amputations, um, depending on, um, on where the, um, the amputation is will be, sometimes there's a, a nerve, um, like communication issue where it's still going to continue to, um, to release like the, that part of the body is still there, even though it's no longer there. This is called phantom pain. Um, it's very real to the patient. It can be pretty severe. It impedes with their um, activities of daily living um, and their recovery as well. Um, but we know that this um, oftentimes is not, um, it's not alleviated with regular pain medications. So we're going to have to use those alternative meds um, that help with the nerve conduction issues. Um, your anti-epileptic meds like gabapentin, are oftentimes very useful because they affect directly the nerves um, and they'll find some relief with that. Um, your patients with amputations, especially if it's above the knee, um, we wanna make sure that they're laying prone uh, for several hours a day initially in order to prevent contractures from the hip because naturally the body pulls to its middle. <clears throat> so we wanna prevent those contractures from occurring. Um, we want to make sure that they have that figure A um, along the stump in order to prevent edema. Edema is going to delay um, healing, and we want to make sure that that stump heals properly um, and has a good shape. So when they get fitted for their um, prosthesis, that it fits correctly. Um, okay, with osteoporosis, we know um, that it's a bone loss issue, it is progressive. There are ways um, that the patient can help um, further prevent um, complications of osteoporosis, weight-bearing exercises. We want them to increase their calcium intake um, in the event that there's issues um, with their calcium intake or it's not improving, then bisphosphonates are our first line of defense. We wanna make sure that they stay sitting up for at least 30 minutes after um, they take the medication. Um, there is a potential for esophagitis or esophageal ulcers. Um, so that's why we want to make sure that they are able to sit up um, for at least 30 minutes. So if they're unable to do that, then um, bisphosphonates wouldn't be um, a good medication for them.
Combination with osteoporosis often presents, we said, um, usually your um, thin, frail, smoker, white, older female um, is usually that specific patient that comes in and has the majority of those risk factors for osteoporosis. Um, so those patients will also show, um, when you look at them, they may have that kyphosis or hunchback um, abnormality of their spine because they've lost that height in um, in their bone um, density. So they may be shorter. Um, they're going to have that kyphosis. Again, they're usually your thin, your ex-smokers, um, those frail, um, usually Caucasian females. Um, we talked about fat emboli. Um, okay, for blood transfusions, um, we want to make sure um, that we are checking vital signs, especially with the temperature prior um, to starting um, a blood transfusion. We know one of some of the side effects of a blood transfusion reaction is fever, so we want to make sure that we have an appropriate baseline um, temperature prior to doing any of this. Um, within 30 minutes of taking the blood out of the blood bank, we want to start that infusion. We know that as time goes by, there's a higher likelihood of bacterial contamination. Hence why blood should be infused um, in that four hour time limit. Um, if you have a patient who has a history or um, is at high risk for a fluid overload, um, we want to make sure that we possibly split those units in order for them to be able to go in in those four hours um, to decrease that bacterial contamination and they're still able to get um, what it is that they need to get without um, overloading um, their fluids. Um, your hemolytic reactions, they usually present with lower back pain, chills, there may be blood-tinged um, urine, um, we tell us, you know, hemolytic are your most serious um, blood transfusions because basically the body is identifying um, this abnormal blood um, and it's attacking all of the red blood cells. The most number one cause of hemolytic um, reactions is due to um, either uh, mislabeling or not appropriately um, identifying the patients, um, so basically giving the wrong blood to the wrong patient. Um, it's usually the number one cause of this type of reactions. Now with your allergic reactions to the blood, um, there may be some itching, some hives, um, often can be treated with some sort of antihistamine and then we would continue the infusion um, depending on what the doctor um, orders. Um, with any blood transfusion reaction, the first thing we're going to do is stop the, trans the transfusion from going, but we want to make sure that we are keeping that line open um, with a new set of IV tubing and normal saline. So your 0.9 normal saline is the only thing that's going to be able to infuse with blood, and we are going to keep that line open um, in order um, to make sure that if we do need to give any medications, we have line available for it. Um, let's see. Um, 
okay for um, sickle cell disease um, we know these patients um, sickle cell disease is the most severe um, these patients are going to have an S-shaped hemoglobin, which has a likelihood of um, sickling. So basically, they kind of um, come together and they form these little clots that oftentimes get lodged. Um, it joints, and that's how they get um, these um, avascular necrosis damage to hips or um, knees or any of those joints because those clots form in there and they're unable to uh, move on through. Um, in addition to that, um, because they have these uh, cells, anytime that a crisis happens, whether it's dehydration, infection, any of those, it's going to trigger these crises. These patients oftentimes have a lot of pain. So we want to make sure that we are providing them with the um, intervention. So we're going to be giving them supplemental oxygen to lower that demand that they are going to have. We're going to give them fluids in order to thin out that blood, right? We don't want the blood to continue to um, form these sickling um, clots. Um, so we want to give them IV fluids. And because they are in a lot of pain, they're going to need some good pain management, um, especially during that crisis. Part of education um, with these patients is to make sure um, that they are aware whenever they have an infection or whether they're in a lot of stress. Um, prevent dehydration, prevent being in places um, where oxygen saturation is lower, so high altitudes um, is definitely contraindicated for them, um, and to go to the hospital um, if they have been sick for um, for some time in order to kind of counteract any potential um, long-term damage that a crisis can occur. Um, with pernicious anemia, that's your vitamin B12 deficiency. We said um, these patients could either have intrinsic factor or no intrinsic factor. If they have intrinsic factor, um, they are able to get oral supplementations of vitamin B12, whether it's by diet, whether it's by oral supplementation, um, and they're going to be able to absorb it. Now, if they don't have intrinsic factor, um, which gets checked with the Schilling's test. So the Schilling test doesn't pass, it means this person doesn't have intrinsic factor. So if they don't have intrinsic factor um, for whatever reason, then even if they have a lot of oral intake of vitamin B12 supplementation, they're not going to be able to absorb it. These patients would need either injectable B12 or intranasal B12 in order to bypass um, that enteral um, route. Um, now with your pernicious anemia, oftentimes these patients um, present with some sort of neural deficits, new onset of dementia-like symptoms. Um, so those patients um, would need B12 to be checked, uh, and sometimes that is uh, the cause of those signs and symptoms. So if we fix the B12 deficiency, then the patient is going to improve. We said a lot of the patients that are high risk for vitamin B12 um, Deficiency are those that have um, had some sort of GI surgery, whether it's a gastrectomy for stomach cancer, for gastric bypass. Um, your patients that may have other reasons for um, intestinal um, resections um, because they're going to be missing that part um, and that tissue that has the intrinsic factor. Um, iron deficiency, um, anemia is very common. Um, it's usually due to some lack of iron, um, iron-rich foods. 
Um, so maybe dietary, women of um, childbearing um, age that could have had a recent pregnancy, heavy menstruation, breastfeeding, um, their demands are going to go up. Um, so if they're not supplementing or having enough iron in their diet, they're going to become have some iron deficiency anemia. Um, whenever there is iron supplementation, um, we want to make sure that that person is also taking some vitamin C, whether it's foods, whether it's um, oral supplementation, because that acidic, that vitamin C is going to help that iron um, be absorbed. In the event that the patient, for whatever reason, is unable to tolerate oral supplementation of iron, because we said it could um, cause heartburn, um, if it's liquid, it could cause staining of the teeth. If it's not diluted and drank from a straw, it can cause constipation. Um, some patients just get a lot of side effects from that oral supplementation. Um, other options may be IM or IV um, iron um, replacements. Um, okay, so for, for periop, um, recovering intro, I mean, pre, intra, and post-op. Um, intra-op, whenever we give succinacholine or becuronium, which is our paralytic agents, um, one, because the diaphragm is a muscle and it's being paralyzed, we need to be ready um, to help ventilate this patient, whether it's with an ambu bag, a bad valve, um, or anesthesia, be ready to intubate right away uh, because the patient's not going to be able to um, breathe on their own. Um, one of the side effects that could potentially happen from these paralytic agents or even from the inhaled anesthetics like your fluorines um, is malignant hypothermia. We said temperatures go increasingly high. There's going to be excess CO2. The patient's going to have um, muscle rigidity. Um, there's going to be a lot of um, changes that are going to occur with this patient. Our immediate treatment um, is going to be the, um, the administration of dantrolene. We said about the malignant hypothermia cards in ORs, which would carry all of the supplies that we would need. Um, in the event that a person has um, an episode of malignant hypothermia, we need to assist in cooling the patient off. So cooling blankets, ice IV fluids. Um, we want to make sure that we are monitoring the temperature that it's going down, um, that we are providing um, supplemental oxygen um, in order to um, reduce, again, um, that need from the body um, and help with that um, CO2 also. Um, periop as well. Um, we said we do timeouts whenever there's going to be a procedure being done. We need to verify that it is the right patient, that we're doing the right procedure, that we're putting the right instrumentation. Um, and this is where everybody needs to acknowledge um, that, in fact, this is the correct patient, that we are addressing any allergies that the patient may have, and everybody's basically on the same page. Um, it's important never to bypass this step because. Um, a bypass and a step could lead to a sentinel event, a wrong surgery, wrong patients, um, etc. Um, other safety guards in the operating room or surgical counts, we want to make sure that everything that is used and nothing gets left behind in the patients and that we're accounting for every single instrument, um, needle, etc. Um, surgical counts get done um, prior to the case, as the case is going on, especially if additional supplies are being added on during the time of the surgery. And then once the surgery finishes, ideally prior to the 
patient being closed back up in the event that something is missing it's not um, adding up to what it should be one we want to make sure that we recount make sure that it wasn't an error in our part from counting in the event that it does stay um, unaccounted for then um, we need to um, notify the provider um, and get x-rays and figure out where um, this um, instrument ended up. When the patient's waking up from surgery, they may potentially not be um, still fully awake. Um, in the event that they have not um, regained full consciousness, we want them in that recovery position or lateral position in the event that they throw up. Um, they don't aspirate, so we want them on that side. Once they're awake um, and a more alert or more conscious, then we can sit them up. If you have a patient who had spinal anesthesia, we want those patients to be um, laying flat um, until they're able to regain all sensation of their legs. Um, complications from their spinal or epidural because it goes into the spinal fluid and there could be some CSF leak. Um, potential complications would... Um, for that CSF leak would present as a headache um, due to the pulling of the, um, of the fluid out. Um, if you have a patient that got um, any kind of benzodiazepines, maybe your PAMs, and they're having some adverse effects, um, our reversal agent would be flamazenil. Um, if it's an opiate, our reversal agent would be naloxone. Um, our main priority in any of the periop areas is to make sure that um, airway is being maintained um, until the patient's fully able to breathe on their own and that they're not having any issues um, breathing afterwards. Um, when a patient is intubated, um, they will complain afterwards of sore throat. Um, they may feel raspy, they may be hoarse. Um, and um, However, a potential complication would be strider um, because of excessive swelling um, of the trachea. And you may hear that, um, and we need to notify the provider, the anesthesiologist, right away because they may need to get some probably steroids um, and then um, proper maintenance of that airway until that swelling goes down. Before surgery, we ask a lot of questions regarding medical history, previous surgery, allergies, meds that the patients are taking. Um, we need to make sure we're asking about um, prescription and over-the-counter and key meds, herbal supplements, um, because there are some that have some contraindications or can um, potentially react adversely with their regular medications, for instance, garlic, ginkgo biloba affect with bleeding. So we wanna make sure that they stop those beforehand. Um, so they don't um, adversely um, affect uh, whatever medications the patient may be taking for their medical conditions or even the anesthetic agents. Um, prior to surgery, we always need to make sure that there is a signed consent. As nurses, we're not obtaining the consent. The provider um, obtains the consent because they have to explain risks, benefits, alternatives, any potential additional surgeries that may have to be done in the case of an emergency. Um, we're only there as witnesses to make sure the patient is signing voluntarily, that they fully are capable of understanding what was explained to them, um, and that they are able to sign. Um, so we're there as witnesses um, for that. Um, let's see. Um, 
if a patient comes in with a life or death emergency um, and, and are unable to provide consent, we assume that the patient is invoking emergency um, informed consent, that they are um, wanting for us to do everything possible to help them or save them um, because we're unable to get anything different from them. So again, that's only in an emergency life or death situation where we would invoke um, informed consent. Otherwise, the patient um, has to be able to fully capable or their healthcare proxy or um, or anybody who makes decisions for them um, legally um, would have to be able to sign. Now consent, even though a person may give it, um, it can be revoked at any time if they change their mind. If they have additional questions, we would call a provider to come um, and further explain um, what it is that's happening with that patient. Okay, for fluids and electrolytes with our fluid volume overload, we know our temperature goes down because of that excessive fluid. Heart rate goes up because as a pump against um, on that excess fluid, the person's gonna have increased breathing because they're trying to breathe against that fluid that may be building up. Um, fluid volume deficit, their heart rate again goes up because it's trying to pump for a little bit of flu um, fluid to wherever it needs to go. Um, the blood pressure will either be normal or eventually if we're not compensating for that fluid loss, there's gonna be um, hypo um, tension. Um, the temperature is gonna go up um, because the body is working harder, so temperature goes um, up with that. As far as renal, um, labs that check for our kidney function is your creatinine levels. Um, those will give us a good idea of um, how the kidneys are functioning. We can also check the UN, but it's not always specific only to renal function. Um, so we may use it in conjunction, but not um, by itself. Um, for fluid retention, things that we check, daily weights are a good way to identify um, how much fluid the person is retaining. Um, for every kilo, it's 1,000 ml of um, fluid being retained, so it's a good um, a good idea. Um, and we will often see that with orders on patients that are on fluid restrictions. Um, we will see those orders for daily weights using the same clothes, the same time, the same scale. Um, kidney stones, we said there's different risk factors um, that promote um, for um, kidney stones, um, oftentimes it's due to dehydration, not enough fluids to flush out um, any sediment that could be forming. So patients that live in hot temperatures that are higher likelihood of dehydration will also um, be at risk. Any family history, so first degree relatives with um, kidney stones increase also our risk. Making sure that the patient's drinking plenty of fluid to flush anything out will also decrease their risk for it. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Renal patients that um, present with, um, hold on, with UTIs. Um, we know that there's different reasons. Female clients are higher likelihood 
of UTI formation due to the fact that their urethras are a lot shorter and closer um, in that perineal area um, with potential contamination. Um, clients should be educated um, to make sure that they're wiping um, front to back in order to not contaminate, good hygiene, um, cotton underwear to help that area breathe, making sure that when um, they go to the bathroom, they go regularly, they're emptying out their bladder appropriately, um, that they're not sitting in wet um, bathing suit that could cause irritation, no bubble baths, um, voiding after sex are all ways to prevent um, UTIs um, in female patients. Um, let's see. Um, when patients are voiding, especially post-op, they want to keep an eye on their renal function. Um, so we are going to notify provider in the event that the patient has is voiding less than 30 mLs per hour for two hours or less than 400 mLs in 24 hours. That would be considered oliguria. We need to make sure that we are identifying is it that they're retaining fluid, are they dehydrated? Um, so we would be checking um, bladder scanner um, to see if if they're retaining fluids or is it that they need additional, um, then they need, um, need catheterization in order to get that fluid out. But again, we need to make sure that we are monitoring that fluid output um, because they can um, end up with some um, permanent renal um, issues afterwards. For incontinence, we said stress happens with um, decreased function of those pelvic floor muscles, especially after pregnancy, delivery, um, things get weak, Kegel exercises help um, regain that pelvic floor strengthening. Urge incontinence is when the patient has sudden urge to go, but they're unable to reach the bathroom because by the time they realize that they have to go, it's already like um, right there. Um, that gets treated with anticholinergics, um, again, Patients that have um, glaucoma, risk of increased intracranial pressure, we don't want to give them anticholinergics. For overflow um, incontinence, um, but basically the bladder doesn't send out that signal that it's full, that it has to go to the bathroom. So um, eventually it's like a vase or a cup that you fill up with water, fill, fill, fill. Eventually it's going to overflow because it can no longer hold um, any more of it. Um, anytime the patient has some sort of study, um, any of your grams, um, where they're going to get iodine contrast, we need to make sure we have a renal function test um, in the chart um, in order to make sure that they are able to tolerate um, the contrast, that we are promoting plenty of fluids afterwards um, in order to flush out that contrast, and that they are... Um, that they don't have any allergies to any shellfish or iodine because there could be some cross reactions. So questions um, that we definitely want to make sure we have on the chart um, prior to taking um, any of our patients um, for any studies. Okay, um, so this is part one. I am going to um, do a second part to finish off the study session. Okay, this is final review part two. Um, so covering diabetes, um, we want to make sure patients have good glycemic control, that they keep an eye on preventative um, evaluations and treatment, um, for instance, getting their eyes checked um, on a yearly basis um, in order to prevent that um, issues with retinopathy, which is a leading cause of adult blindness, um, so they're able to um, 
catch it early um, or prevents, you know, with good glycemic control, um, they can potentially help um, prevent complications. Other um, diabetes complications are nephropathy, which is damage to the kidneys. Um, that is one of the reasons um, patients end up in um, acute renal failure and end up in dialysis. Um, neuropathy, um, damage to the nerves. Um, it could be peripheral with their hands, feet, but um, it could affect any um, nerve um, in the body. Um, okay, if a patient's having hypoglycemia, we know they could be um, anxious, sweaty, um, they could be clammy. Um, initially, we want to make sure that we are checking that blood glucose if it's hypoglycemic, but the patient is still um, awake and arousable, they're conscious, um, then we would provide them with 15 to 20 grams of simple carbohydrates. If they're unconscious, then we would have to um, do um, injectable glucagon. Okay, but if they're able to, um, they still have a guide reflex and are conscious, and we would give them those simple carbs. It could be um, also those commercially available um, glucose tabs or gels. Um, and then in 15 minutes, we would reject um, that blood sugar again. If it doesn't rise up, then we need to get them to a higher level of care in order to get properly treated. Um, patients that um, have insulin. Um, we know regular insulin is the one that we would give in case of an emergency. Um, regular insulin is the only one that can be given IV. Um, the only two insulins that we can mix are regular and NPH. Any of the other ones would have to be given separately um, using two separate syringes. But if you have um, regular and NPH, you could mix it in the same one. Um, important education also. Um, in the event that there's um, excessive hyperglycemia, then those patients um, would be getting boluses of normal saline. 0.9 normal saline would be given, and that would help. Um, education for the patient, it's important for them to know their sick day rules um, in order to prevent complications. Um, we want to make sure that they continue their medication regimen as they normally do, um, because when patients are sick or under a lot of stress, naturally the body is going to release more glucose. So we want them under meds, we want them to stay hydrated, um, so drink often um, in order to keep that um, fluid intake. Um, they're going to be monitoring their ketones and their urine. If they become positive, then they should be going to the emergency room and they need to regularly check their blood sugar. And so normally maybe they would check it once a day. Um, and those days that they're sick, they need to be checking it every three to four hours to keep close tabs, um, on any potential, um, decompensation that they may be having during that time. Okay. Um, GI. Um, if a patient's having um, gastroenteritis or they're having vomiting, diarrhea, um, we want to make sure that we are replacing fluids. If they're having just diarrhea and maybe nausea where they're still tolerating um, oral um, or liquids or food, then we would do oral rehydration. So using any of those oral rehydration solutions, Pedialyte, Gatorade, Powerade, any of those. If the patient is actively vomiting, then we would have to use um, IV. Um, for GI also, recovering GERD, 
um, and gastritis. We know this is excessive um, gastric acids that are coming up that could potentially cause um, some permanent damage. So patients that have gastritis or GERD that's untreated or undertreated um, can potentially develop Barrett's esophagus, which is um, dysplasia of those um, esophageal cells. So they would need monitoring with that. Um, treatment for GERD, um, we want to identify what it is that's going on. Oftentimes, it may be a lower esophageal sphincter issue, um, but medications that would be used uh, include antacids, your uh, proton pump inhibitors, your histamine to receptor antagonists, um, your cytoprotective, um, your prokinetics, um, all those help um, with those signs and symptoms. Um, presenting, um, some patients may present with burning sensation of their chest. They can have chest pain. The chest pain can radiate. Um, they may have um, a raspy throat in the mornings um, from that acidity that's going up when they lay down. Respiratory-wise, they could have increased episodes of asthma in their asthmatics um, because, again, that irritation from the acidity. Um, sometimes they have um, pain. They feel like they have something stuck in their throat, and that's just from the swelling of the um, of the tissue from the cells, um, from the acidity into the cells of the esophagus and the back of the throat. They may complain that their mouth feels sour, um, except with gastric ulcers, peptic ulcer disease, we said um, two main causes are NSAID use or H. pylori. So when patients are in long-term NSAIDs, we may have to also additionally give them something to protect their stomach lining from that um, irritation and constant damage. Um, if it's H. pylori, we said it's a bacteria that has um, overgrown, um, overpopulated. Um, it is a combination treatment, um, which has its um, downfalls because of the amount of medications a patient has to take, but adherence is very important because otherwise that H. pylori um, will um, not be relieved. Um, going further into the GI system, we have our inflammatory bowel disease, we have our ulcerative colitis and our Crohn's. We said they're both inflammatory in nature. Um, ulcerative colitis follows um, a continuous pattern while Crohn's has body areas, it could affect anywhere in the GI system. Um, ulcerative colitis only does the surface of the intestines um, versus Crohn's, which goes right through. That's why sometimes patients will have perforations, they'll have fistulas, etc. Um, but both of them have damage to the lining of the intestines, and um, it's going to alter um, their ability to absorb nutrients, protein, um, and anything like that because they're constantly having these ulcerations and bleeding. Um, these patients should be on high protein, low fiber diets. So we don't want them to be going more often to have a bowel movement, um, but we want them to have a good amount of protein in order to help them heal. Um, Um, that's GI. Um, for electrolytes, we know patients that are on Latex, furosemide, um, are high risk for hypokalemia, so they need to be on potassium supplementation of some sort, whether it's in their diet or um, in tablet form, in order to make up for what they're losing. 
Um, let's see. For hypokalemia, we said that prominent U wave. We also said um, anytime there's any abnormality in potassium, we need to check um, EKG because there could be some cardiac dysrhythmias, any some abnormal um, cardiac rhythms that could occur with um, alterations in potassium. Um, for hypocalcemia, which is low calcium, um, we see things such as muscle spasms. Um, patients will have issues um, with um, their uh, reflexes as far as like the Vostec and the Trousseau's. We want to be able to um, know how to check for those. Um, One second. Um, so Vostek is one where we're tapping the cheek um, and it's eliciting a spasm. Uh, while with um, Trousseau's, the patient's getting, um, you put the blood pressure cuff on their arm and they will, um, and their arm will spasm and that causes um, pain. Um, so we want to make sure um, that we're able to check for those um, risks for hypocalcemia or laryngeal or bronchial spasms. Um, so airway management is important. Um, now for hypercalcemia, so high calcium um, in the bloodstream, we see patients would have, um, it makes everything slow, so low and slow. Um, so they're going to have weakness, lethargy, fatigue, confusion. Their reflexes are going to be really slow. Um, if it's something that's going on for a while, the patient may have be at increased risk for fractures or bone pain or even renal stones. Um, so we want to make sure that we are um, paying attention to that as well. Uh, see, that was electrolytes. Um, for respiratory, um, in the event that your patient has a chest tube, we want to make sure we have an occlusive dressing available at all times at the bedside um, in the event that it comes out, or even when the patient um, is having it removed, we're going to have um, um, that occlusive dressing um, placed um, in that area where the chest tube was um, in. As well, if you're transferring, transporting a patient with a chest tube, we want to make sure that that um, chest tube is below the level of the heart. We want gravity to work alongside with us. We want to make sure um, that it's not backflowing into the chest and rather it's going um, to the outside. Similar to when you have an indwelling catheter, um, we want to make sure we keep it below the level of the heart so it doesn't backflow. Um, Flu vaccine, uh, we said influenza, they have a vaccine that's yearly. Um, it is a base for a patient who has um, an allergic reaction to eggs, um, should not be getting um, the flu vaccine. And if it does get given, um, they have to be closely monitored in the event that they would have an anaphylactic reaction. There are some alternatives to it um, that are available. But again, that's part of the questions um, that we would ask prior to um, giving a flu vaccine, making sure that they don't have um, 
any contraindication. For TB, um, we know tuberculosis, it's airborne precautions. Anybody entering the room, um, it's going to be wearing N95. If the patient has to leave the room, they'll be wearing a mask in order to not contaminate the people around them. Um, they're not going to be roomed with anybody else. It's a single occupancy negative pressure room. Um, with the treatment, we know that um, long-term uh, TB requires a long-term um, treatment, six to nine months. So adherence is an issue because of it, um, because of the length of the treatment. Um, Okay, um, I think that is it. Um, again, it is 100 questions. It is cumulative um, from the beginning of the term until the very end. Um, there are 20 questions on stroke. There's eight questions on seizures. Four questions on infection, so that's HIV and C. diff. Um, six questions for cardiac. Eight questions for musculoskeletal um, and skin. Um, five on blood transfusion. Six on anemia. Ten perioperative. Six fluid and electrolytes. Seven renal. Um, five diabetes. Five GI. Five med math, and seven respiratory um, and tuberculosis questions and then you have your five med math um and that's it thank you guys